2: It's been a steady rise to dizzy political heights for Antichok Kmeal Martin, from a prominent member of the UCC common of and of Oil, to history teacher, to securing election to Cork Corporation. There was a blip in 1987 when he did not win a seat in his first general election, but it was only a temporary setback, but a reminder that this was the serious end of politics. Two years later, he was in, when Charlie Haughey called a snap election. He's been elected at every election since. In 1992, Micheál Martin was Lord Mayor of Cork. Two years later, he joined Bertie Ahern's front bench in opposition. Fianna Fáil returned to power in 1997, and Micheál Martin was appointed Minister of Education and Science, and in a cabinet reshuffle, he was Minister for Health and Children in 2000, Minister for Enterprise, Trade and Development in 2004, Minister for Foreign Affairs in 2008, Leader of his party in 2011 and Taoiseach in 2020. It's been a steady and sustained rise in career, although he will admit it was not planned. In a room in Porky Rin, a stadium dedicated to the greatest hurler of all time, Christy Ring, a close friend of the Taoiseach's father, I sit down to chat with Michal Martin. After five minutes, I discard my prepared questions because this isn't a political interview. It's a conversation about life in general, with politics obviously included here and there. It's a conversation that goes everywhere, back and forth, soccer, hurling, growing up, politics, dancing, his father the international boxer and taking on the powerful big guns of the tobacco industry as he introduces a smoking ban in 2003. The life and times of a Taoiseach on Where the Road Takes Me this evening. Good evening and thank you for joining us. Step right in. We're in Parky Wren, beautiful stadium dedicated to one of the greatest hurlers of all time. And I
3: know that Christy Ring was very, very close to your late father, Paddy. He was. They were great, great friends. Um, my father played Gaelic football with Christy Ring with St. Nick's. I think the last four county finals. Uh, and the Knicks then eventually won, I think, in 1953. And my father was ruled out because apparently he had played with CIE in an interfirm game. And that wasn't allowed at the time. So I kind of grew up in our house like that. uh, He lost four county middles and so on. That's that's what he used to say. But I remember when Christy Ring passed away, I was in college at the time, my twin brother, Pardy, got to go to the funeral with my dad. And he came back and said to me, because that time fathers didn't cry in front of you. And Pardy just said to me that night, dad was crying today. And that kind of gave him a measure of the bond, the sort of admiration that he had for Christy Ring. And he, he regaled us all with some great stories of Christy Ring when my father was a boxer, as you know. Mm-hmm. And um, Christy was very competitive, a great hurler, won all Ireland and so on. But he also wanted to win the football matches with St. Nicks. And the father at his wedding, the best man told a great story, which got told down through the years of, the father was fighting the European champion of Milan and Rome with the Irish boxing team, a guy called uh, Giovanni to Signy, and that Sunday anyway the father had a very close fight with him uh, a very tough fight and he comes back t- the following weekend he's playing with St. Nick's in a match down the park or what's now park Eve and the photo misses an open goal, blasts it wide, and Ring gave it to him in the dressing room after the game saying, Paddy, like you could have made a name for yourself. You could have had your name up in lights if you just tapped the ball into the net and stopped blasting it I- 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 at the big fella. father could take no more and then said back to Christy, he said, Christy, don't you be talking to me. A few expletives in this now as well. Don't I'm you I'm be I'm talking idea. to me <laughs> about having your name up in lights when you're out there in Milan, he says, up in lights, he says the is Italia versus Martini, Irlanda, then you can talk whatever your name (laughs) up and And so that kind of banter was kind of the nature of it. And we grew up, Ring was the hero in Cork. And in fact, I passed it on to my kids. Uh, I can remember telling me how late when he was four that, Don't ever let anyone tell you there was any hurler better than Christy Ring or that there ever will be. Mm. And that's the kind of thing we grew up with. And uh, I think I was here for the opening um, and I think it was a great honour to Christy Ring. um, And I think there's been some great stuff written about him. But he was the true hero, wasn't he, in terms of, you know, how people just watched his every move when he was on the playing field. And all of the commentators, if you read back around that period, he made the Railway Cups, you know people thronged from the four corners of Ireland just to see him play. Yeah, uh, Just to see him play. And, he, he, you know, you, sometimes I wasn't born in that era, uh, but you almost regret that you weren't, that you didn't actually see him play.
2: I was just looking at his quotes over there on the wall and one was and going back to what you said regarding practice and training never miss training because if you do there's no excuse in the world for it so that'll tell you how dedicated he was
3: also yeah and there's a very basic thing there isn't there about application yeah temperament do it right get into the routine I I, I heard Sonia Sullivan recently saying something similar about all athletes have to do the same thing every day and practice the same routine every day. And that is the measure of the great star and the great hero. I mean, Roy Keane was somewhat similar, wasn't he? I mean, you know, uh, Roy Keane yeah, had that failed application. To pre- failed to prepare. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and Christy Ring, the father would say to me, one of the most competitive sportsmen he ever came across. Uh, and, and training non-stop and no excuses. A great mentor as well. I mean, yeah. in those 70s, those three All-Irelands, uh, that Ray Cummins story I love, you know, when um, they're all getting their pep talk and then Ring is quite, quiet and addressing but before they go out he said I've been watching the referee all year he'll allow you to take a few extra steps and if you remember Ray Cummins' goal in one of those I learned I think Ray does about 10 or 15 steps and he kicks the ball into the net <laughs> and it's a load yeah, yeah that's application for it." yeah,
1: yeah.
2: I was only wondering here a while ago, this of course was Flower Lodge before it was yeah. uh, Parky Green. You were probably too young. No, were well, you not? No, I I, I
3: I was around twelve. See, I was born in Turners Cross. Yeah, Turners Cross. So you were a Celtic. I was a Celtic man, yeah. and the box, as we would call it, and growing up as children, we'd go out to the box every night. Like I remember, the father would say to me, "What are you doing? Like we're in the freezing cold uh, on a winter's night watching Cock Celtic train." Uh, you know, Carl Humphreys and uh, Ben Hannigan. And the '74, yeah. of course, was the famous year. Ben Hannigan uh, came from Shelburne. He came it? from Shelburne. Yeah. Richard Brooks and, and Keith Edwards were lodging two doors up from us with the Collins. In O'Connell Avenue, we thought we were the bee's knees. Like we knew the lads, you know, we knew these two players that come over from England. Paddy Short, if you remember. I do, uh, yeah. Know, he came across from Hibs. And uh, the training sessions used to be great. Paulie Donovan and Carl Humphreys. would always have a row at the end of the. <laughs> I hope they don't mind me saying that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But we'd be thrilled as kids watching this kind of stuff, you know. But anyway, cut a long story short, we would go to the Hibs games as well. And we'd walk across from Turners Cross down here. And there were some iconic days and huge crowds. The Cock War- Hibs Waterford game. Yeah, 20- and there was one here coming out. I, I know Really lost my breath. I was lifted up as a young fella. We were just, I suppose, from the age of eleven to about fifteen or sixteen, we were following all those games. My father drove Hibs up to Bally Buffet when they were playing Finn Harps. That might have been a cup um, game. Probably was. It yeah. was a winter's night because it came back in snow. My mother was up all night worried about uh, you know coming yeah. down into sleet and snow. And because but, because he stood up at six in the morning and they got they got into Cork, Davenport and Wiganton. They're all on the bus. And he said, "There's the man that we should all be going down on our knees to thank." And he was praising the father for getting them down safely, etc., etc. Fought a great time for Bacuzzi, great manager. And you know, Celtic were seen as the kind of underdog against Hibbs at the time, but we had our moment in that famous uh, '74, wasn't it? We won the league with Hannigan and, uh, and all of that with yeah. a great Who team. Who was the manager again? He was working for Murphy's Brewery, I think. Was it Polly, Paulie? Paulie Donovan wasn't exactly, yeah, it, it Paulie was. Exactly. Paulie Donovan, you. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? yeah. And I just think explain maybe, you know, the background of Turtles Cross was interesting because Crease 3 is there. We're going to class Crease 3, the great Gaelic football and hurling nursery in its day. I mean, in the '73 Cox senior football winning team, there was about, from Queen Street on the panel extraordinary kind of nursery but equally it was a big soccer parish uh, Tremor Athletic Cork City and I remember 1968 as an 8 year old when Manchester United won the European Cup at the time it was now the Champions League the whole parish came out and celebrated on the streets so there's a strong soccer tradition there um, as well and then you had Musgrave Park further out we were kind of charmed really growing up Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'd hear kind of distant stories of Munster doing great heroics and musgrave <laughs> that kind of thing. You know? Yeah, it yeah, yeah. mightn't get in there, you know. Yeah.
2: You mentioned Dave Bacossi before. Unfortunately, he was one of the people who succumbed to COVID nineteen. I didn't realize yeah. that. Too. And yeah. how I found that out was the Irish Times published a series of photographs very early in the pandemic of people who oh. who died, and I was running through it and reading the different stories behind each person, and then I came across a photograph of Dave Bacossi, and he was one unfortunately. Like, but. Yeah. but
3: you you Know the enjoyment he brought to Corpus, absolutely. Just, you, know. you know, I mean, and, and they were great. You know, John Herrick, wasn't he? John, John, John Herrick played with yeah, it, yeah. Lawson, Wigginton, Lawson, Wigginton, Marston, uh, yeah, 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 I yeah. Think Nola Manny for a while. Was and Pat was with, with his brother, was with Celtic. They were, they were great, great times, um, you know, and, um, and Joe Grady and goal, that's right, <laughs> great goalkeeper, <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we had Alex but oh, that's right, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it could go on, yeah, it could go on, yeah.
2: <laughs> Turner's Cross man of course Yeah, yeah. and you no, know, we mentioned your dad and I worked with your dad in CIE and I think I said to you before that to give you an idea of what regard was for the man both he and Joe Tracy there was an unwritten rule in Capital Garage that if Joe Tracy or Betty Martin asked you to do anything you never refused so that'll tell you the the regard they had for both <laughs> okay, men okay. in in Capital Garage growing up what are your memories of growing up in Turner's Cross because funny enough during the week I was recording a program with Red Hurley and he said he met Thank you in Dublin at Brendan Grace's That's funeral true. and you told him that the show band era and the dancing era when you were growing up were very important to you.
3: Is that true? Yeah, because the father used to drive down the, the buses to Crosshaven. Yeah, oh yeah. You see, that was it. <laughs> and that the father, the Mallorca, yeah, Mallorca and or whatever it was, yeah. And uh, the father would do those runs down. It'd be, I, I presume all the fans were waiting at a grand parade or whatever and, and you'd, you'd drive them all down to Crosshaven and he'd come back then with all the cards, you know, uh, all the show band cards the Sean Dunphy's, the, the, you know, Dickie, uh, Rock, Red Hurley, uh, and you get all these kind of photographs of all these glamorous guys and all the rest of it, and, yeah. and show band era. So that's how it kind of came into our house, and then of course Eurovision and all of that was a big thing at the time. Growing up in Tunnel's Cross was, was absolutely very happy, carefree days for us. I was born in 1960, so I suppose we kind of lucky we were born into the right decade. Mm-hmm. There was a kind of a lifting sense of lifting uh, uh, boats. I remember the father would have bought his first car during the 60s in partnership with his brother-in-law. suppose so, you know, They were working people, you know, they couldn't afford a car. That's right. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And it kind of, it was kind of awkward enough, but he'd take it for his holidays and the father would take the Volkswagen for, for that was the first car was a Volkswagen. I remember that kind of thing well. But it was, a, if you ever read Paddy Clark by Roddy Doyle, which is kind of a novel based on sort of a Dublin 60s upbringing and 70s, it was something similar. Large families, Turners Cross, Maliffy we, we all playing soccer on the street. Like I was born on O'Connell Avenue, there was a, a narrow down to O'Connell Crescent. When I look back on it and walk down it now, you'd have 15 kids playing on that narrow up Against Murphy's door, they wouldn't do yeah. it in the morning's gate, yeah. uh, and we kicking the shins off each other. And then the Crescent was a bigger pitch when I say pitch, concrete pitch, and we had some real great soccer matches there. And you're right, the, the, all the residents were very tolerant of us, you know, we were banging gates and the ball was hitting gates. But you would just every you know, many houses at five, seven, eight kids that was the time. Uh, you'd get up to Ballyfi Hand, then Ballyfi Hand Park, you'd have we'd play Condy Road or we'd play against the Ballyfi Hand gang, uh, on, 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 on the pitches there. <laughs> Uh, and be, that was like Cork and Kerry. That was so. like Cork and Kerry. <laughs> 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 Having a right go. We all knew each other from Cree Street and Deer, Deer Park and all that kind of stuff. But, but they were really happy days. Uh, and um, uh, and then, you know, Cree Street was a big influence on us. Um, Skull Cree Street was just down the road from us. So that time you'd walk into school, you'd walk home for your lunch. Um, and um, the same with the that We just automatically passed on to the cloche, Uh And I, I, I have to say they were happy, very happy days for us. And um, we were mad into the football. And, and, and hurling uh, and Crease 3 suited us from that perspective um, and also things like um, you know there was Seamus Langford Martin of there were teachers in Clonest 3 that when you look back on it in the early 70s you used to take about 100 kids for a month down to the west Kerry Geltuk and Korka that was our first expedition away from home uh, you know without parents or without yeah, yeah, family yeah, to go wild yeah. to go wild and we were yeah. only 12 in the first year 13 in the first year 1973 and then 1974 and we spent a month in Fionnach that had influence on us too and probably is why I kind of had a, and uh, you know uh, I, I did Irish in college afterwards I taught Irish and I like Irish and I'm not brilliant at it but but I fell in love with Corcaguina and and the Dingle Peninsula through those visits that Chris 3 introduced that to working class kids in Cork and I thought what a great legacy for those teachers to leave us you know we really loved it and we but we did things then you could never do today you know they didn't seem to be too worried about insurance or public liability or we'd cycled 13 miles uh, you know of to Slay Head uh, all those beautiful beaches along there you could do things whereas today the kids are not allowed for various reasons and there seem to be less concerns about <laughs> I don't want to get the teachers into trouble about our safety <laughs> our well-being, yeah. you know yeah. but they gave us a bit of freedom you know and then we climbed Mount Brandon with them and uh, it was a great crack it was really enjoyable
2: The Life and Times of a Taoiseach I'm in conversation with Taoiseach Mihal Martin on Where the Road Takes Me this evening And that's the end of part one, but the conversation resumes again in part two, and that's after the break. Where the Road Takes Me brings me to Parky Rim this evening to meet on Taoiseach Michal Martin. It's not a political interview, but it's a conversation about life and times, growing up in Turner's Cross, sport, parents, grandparents, life in general, with a general discussion on politics. And so we begin part two by hearing about the health-conscious Taoiseach. A health conscious person. Do you watch your diet and do you watch your exercise? And the reason I ask you is, I've often watched you during campaign trails, and the local constituents are running after you with their tongues out, trying to keep up to you, looking for oxygen, and you're like the road runner. <laughs> so
3: I, are, are you conscious of keeping yourself fit? I am, and uh, I think look, I walk. Walking is my thing. I'm not <laughs> good on the upper body stuff. I don't do any gyms or anything yeah. that, which I probably have to do at some stage. But you walk uh, very fast. I walk very, yeah, very nearly fast. as fast as Rob Heffernan uh, Yeah, I, I give me a run. <laughs> <laughs> try <That's right. laughs> Steal the point uh, I love walking. Uh, I do. I'm, I've become very health conscious. I think since the time became Minister for health, my father kind of instilled that in us. He'd always be saying, "That's good for you." He said Chris Ringer a great thing about the apple. He said Chris, you thought the rust, you know, the, the, or the iron, like that's the good side of the apple. thought, <laughs> but but no, uh, yeah, and I would be very health conscious food i watch the food i eat and um, a lot of plant food you know i do the chickpeas or the the butter beans i enjoy it i enjoy the steak and i I enjoy fish um and i I have a good diet and it was tom moffat who was a minister of state when i went into health and he was a gp and at the time when i was education minister i loved education you know you go to all the various schools and in a school opening there'd be a feast nuns and the teachers. oh no better than the nuns, sandwiches yeah. Yeah. and the big cakes and i loved that then that was kind of keep me going for the day but i was saying this to tom and he said nah He said look you need three meals a day and uh, the old the old adage you know uh, breakfast being the most important so i eat a good breakfast porridge uh, a grapefruit and apple and, and um, a banana and a pot of green tea afterwards and i get a lovely medieval bread in the douglas market uh, your man told me, the going in the arbutus uh, place, so he says, oh, yeah. What type right. of bread? It's called medieval bread. Yeah. He, found, he claims it's an old medieval recipe, a few currants of stuff in it, but he said, All the, all the hikers love it, he said. So I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 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 a, I'm a sucker for uh, anyone who wants to send me a bit of food or <laughs> tell me it's organic or tell me it's this. I'm sure yeah. I'm your man. No, I, I enjoy food and I enjoy variety in food, and, um, but it's basic enough food. And uh, yeah, I am health conscious, I suppose where did the politics come from
2: then now you, you were in ucc and did you dip your toes in politics in ucc and I did. of course romance came as well you met your wife
3: married i, did. There I think the politics came yeah. from home originally the father has a very I won't go into the he has a very interesting background in the sense that his three brothers joined the British army and he alone joined the Irish army his parents died when he was about 14, 15 so they had a tough life and the sister kept them together the older sister there was two younger siblings one had to go to an orphanage for about well, a boarding yeah, which she got looked after for a couple of years uh, and then the 10 year old was minded by the older sister Paddy was about 15 he went into the Irish army but mm-hmm. when he came out he seemed to go the devil air direction and he was seen a file but my grandmother my mother's side were coming among War of Independence people, founding members of Fianna Fáil in Cork. It was a Fianna Foyle household, if I'm honest. Father a bit more independent minded. In UCC, I um, joined Fianna Fáil in my second year. We started it again, it had been dormant. I didn't think then I'd be a politician. I'd never, ever envisaged myself being a TD. I wanted to be a history teacher. That was my aim in life at that stage. We would have been the first in our generation to go to college. So the parents were delighted with all of that, you know, uh, that young lad in university. But bit by bit, when you're in college, I really loved UCC as well. And uh, the hunger strikes were happening. It was a hot time politically and um, I did dip my toes in politics and I found myself at various meetings and the philosoph which was the debating society used to see was a big thing at the time and was Saturday night and that was a big social event of the week for us and the philosoph would be packed 300 people you'd get a few pints in the college bar afterwards if you stood up and said something you got a free pint even if you weren't in the debate and we you might go on to a house party after that then you know so yeah that the politicization in the sense of getting into party politics happened around then i visited northern ireland in 81 joined the hunger strikes i would have met every single political party and group there with three other young students at the time that was a turning point in just standing back and learning a bit more about the north because we were. Co- protected down here in the south. And we had all the old slogans about British South and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But we really didn't understand the nuances of this. had to be this, there, yeah. Or the complexities of it, yeah. or the different perspectives from different communities. That weekend was formative. And I had a long, because we grew up in the, in the Northern Ireland Troubles, I had a lifelong interest in the north. And it was one of the motivating factors for me to go into politics. And it's difficult for our generation today to maybe understand that. But if you were nine years of age when Northern Ireland erupted, and you go through the 70s, and there's some terrible atrocities are committed and so on. It was the issue of the day, and we never thought we'd get peace. And so that and education were my two kind of interests. You know, I was very passionate about education and I did the H-dip in college. I met Mary in college. She came into the phenophile coming at about when I was in third year. I was doing the dip then and I often joked that because I started going out with Mary, then we kind of, we had a beautiful, that was a beautiful time in college. I, I decided I better do a master's degree to try and cement this relationship. <laughs> 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 I mean, that time you had the freedom to do these things, you know. And the mother didn't mind. Like, the mother's attitude was she was mad for me to do the academic stuff. She actually was a bit regretted that I did the politics. She wanted me to continue on an academic life. Yeah, get a proper job. <laughs> get a proper job. And, uh, but at the same time, her, her grandmother would have been the matriarch, you know. Her grandmother was a fierce woman and uh, would have been involved in helping Sean Moylan escape. Sean Moylan went from Cork prison to her mental hospital as part of a ruse. Claiming insanity, she was a mental health nurse. She walked him out the back, past security and everything, and he hops over the wall. She laid out one or two of the clan Mult the victims of the clan Mult ambush. Oh, yeah. um, so, and they were in Dunbar Street, where, where they move, and they moved up from East Cork. Uh, she married uh, Mitchell's Tom and McCorbett. Uh, he was in the whole uh, IRA as well in the context of the um, rescue of Sean Hogan, and he minded Sean Hogan in the Galty Mountains. So as his sentry. So they they came from really kind of Republican DNA there, and I think that came through. And she was a kind of a defined woman. So all that's in the mix. And what happens then is I join Oireachtas. I get elected to the National Executive. You get more involved as you do, and then people come to me and say, "We think you would be a good candidate for Fianna Fáil in the local election." in Turners Cross. Your father's very well known, you know, number three bus driver, number which was throat Bell Hand. That's right. Yeah, I drove Num- it. <laughs> number four round Turners Cross. So they all knew him. And um I decided to run and uh, I learned very quickly it wasn't about policy as much, you know, they weren't that I have to be honest when I was doing Connolly Road or McDermott Place and so on it wasn't so much which I thought were brilliant plans for the reform of Cork City Council it was are you Paddy Martin's son uh, and they'd say to you then I was there the night he beat and which was a famous fight he had in the City Hall against the who, who became later the British um, Empire Heavyweight Champion Joe Bygrass. and it was six two minute rounds packed City Hall apparently a great fight he wins the father wins and uh, it kind of was one of those things that a lot of people were there on the night, uh, and um, I suddenly realized I had to put on my. Ca- I went back to the gang, we we're all young people, kind of enthusiastic about getting elected, but we didn't know everything, you know. So I said, Listen, we need to put down son of Eddie Martin, international boxer, on a yeah. card because that's the calling card.
2: Was 87 your first general election? It was. You weren't elected, but even in sport, there's a saying that you've got to learn how to lose before you learn how to win. Was that an experience for you and a
3: learning point? It was. I mean, the interesting point there is that fate in politics is a crucial thing, F-A-T-E, chance. The formation of the Progressive Democrats at the time was my opportunity, an opening. After the local elections we thought we could win anything you know, we were kind of full of that shut spell, like we, we won the local elections, so in we go into the 87, but the PDs are formed. Pierce Wise was DTD at the time, used the mass great votes, wonderful person, and he joined the Progressive Democrats. So Fianna Fáil felt they needed someone and Pierce's this area and turn class. cross. So I was duly nominated, uh, along with Matt O'Keefe, John Denny, and Barry Cogan at the time, and Fianna Fáil were fighting up against it at that stage, uh, weren't popular in Cork at the time so you know I realized it's like sort of you know you're suddenly playing senior championship and uh, you're not up to it you know Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, halfway through that campaign I said this is much bigger than I thought this is not the locals and I could feel it uh, that we weren't going to quite make it we're doing well but just didn't have the breath or the reach so we got about 3-7, I think, in that election. You know, disappointed, but I remember a couple of wise heads came up to me and said, keep saying, no, oh, you're very close here. Don't you concede defeat and just count until much later in the day. You learn. And like, I didn't. That was wise because coming out next time in 89, we kept saying to people on the door, we're just narrowly beaten the last time. And that was yeah. the sense coming out of it. That was a snap election, wasn't it, 89? That was amazing because yeah. I remember Mary was then working at Fianna headquarters, so nothing to do with me or anything like that, but they had spotted her being efficient, organizing leaders' visits to UCC. They asked her would she become the um, youth officer for the party, managing Ogre Foyle, uh, and directing it, which she did, and she moved to Dublin. But she rang me in 1989 saying, Charlie, I had come back from Japan. We had lost a private members motion in the Dáil. It's kind of incredible looking back now that you would go to the country on the basis of losing a, a private members motion. A lot of people were, for, were urging him to run because he had very high poll ratings and he had been leading a very successful minority government from 87 to 89 getting the finances right and all that kind of Stuff, but it was a big mistake. But for me, it that's what I meant by fate, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I ran, Mary said, You can't run, sure, we don't can't afford it, we can't, you know, you, you're just we just put a deposit on the house and all this kind of stuff. And I said, Look, I have to run because I could get 5,000 this time. I didn't think I'd win when I threw my hat into the ring in 1989, but. What had happened was the previous year, I was finishing the Masters. I mean, the Masters took a long time. It was writing a big thesis. But Tom Brosnan was the then Lord Mayor and gave me a lot of deputy mayoralties to do out of functions. And that gave me far higher profile within the city. And I put a lot down to that profile I got as Deputy Lord Mayor. Also, I knocked on a lot of doors in between. So I remember doing all of Mahan on my own a year before 1989. Not knowing there'd be a general election in 1989, but just calling to people... Sort of say, have you any issues? What are the challenges here, and so on, like that? So that hard graft—it's all about hard work. Um, you know, back to what we said about ring and keen in respect of sport. The mm-hmm. Same applies to politics, in my view. You might get an odd—you know—sometimes you might get, look, you go on a tide. But generally speaking, it's hard work. But I, I was fortunate that that opening came, and I did very well in that election in 1989 and took the first Fianna Fáil seat. Uh, and and unfortunately, it was about a key lost out that time. It was Barry Cogan's transfers put John Dennehy in, but. The three of us then got elected subsequently in in 97. Uh, I got re-elected in 92. and, um, And I think the message there is progression, you know. You can build and you can build on, uh, on the foundations. You were a young politician in 89 when you were first elected. What was Charlie ha- Hawley like? Well, that's why I remember meeting when he was elected in 89 uh, and about 17 of us I uh, think were newly elected TDs and he kind of came in. I don't think he was, he, that, and that particular meeting he had a lot on his head and mind but he just said to us look, mind your constituency. That was his first lesson to a first coming TD. Constituency, constituency, constituency. In other words, consolidate. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't get lose the to running yourselves around Dublin thinking you're going to be all beaters and all that kind of thing. You uh, and he was kind of putting us pretty firmly on, on a more realistic sort of trajectory and mind yourselves, mind your constituency uh, and keep it solid. I got on well with him, uh, I must say, um, even though you would at that time you didn't have much interaction with the party leader um, as you would today and the, the, the leaders were that bit more distant from you and I got to know him later as I was re-elected in, in 92. Uh, I would have supported that coalition government with the Progressive Democrats, or sorry, that was in the, 80, the 89, apologies, that was 1989, mm-hmm. when Desi O'Malley and Charlie O'Hara had to come together, um, and then 92 was the Labour Coalition which, with, with Albert Reynolds, which I also supported. There was always that sense of pragmatism in how I approached politics. In terms of, of, of big thinking, I mean, the Financial Services Centre was his he executed that in terms of creating thousands of jobs today uh, areas like horticulture he, he was keen on people don't realise the whale and dolphin sanctuary that it, when Ireland was one of the first to become so he had a, there was a lot of big thinking in him and then he had a lot of challenges as well as we know and, and uh, did wrong things as well mm-hmm. But he was a very policy-focused person in, in terms of and he wanted to get things done uh, on a whole range of fronts in terms of marine and, um, and, and technology and, and, and so on. So you, you, if you look at the, the Tyndall today in Cork, which is a world-class research centre that began its life as a National Microelectronics Centre with Jerry Rickson, Charlie Hoy would have been an earlier believer in that centre and ensured its fund, funding.
2: The Taoiseach, Mihal Martin, is my guest this evening on Where the Road Takes Me. It's a conversation about his life and times. We meet in Parky Rin, the GAA stadium in Boring Manor Road, dedicated to Christy Ring, a close friend of the Taoiseach's late father. Coming up in Part 3, going head-to-head with the powerful tobacco industry, as Mihal Martin is adamant about implementing a smoking ban in 2003. Part 3 is on the horizon. It's part three of Where the Road Takes Me, and the T-shirt Michal Martin is my guest on this week's edition of the programme. Well, against tough opposition, mainly and obviously from the tobacco industry, Michal Martin introduced a ban on tobacco smoking in all Irish workplaces, including pubs and restaurants. On January 30th, 2003, he announced his intention to have the ban in place by New Year's Day of 2004. About your time as uh, Minister for Health, because that's a portfolio everybody seems to refer to as the poison chalice. And you will be remembered for establishing the HSE, but especially for the ban on tobacco in the working place, the ban, ban on smoking. What
3: are your memories of that? Because I presume there was a lot of opposition to it. Yeah, it was a huge opposition at the time and it's great lessons to be learned from it in the sense that sometimes politicians need to lead from the front. We didn't do opinion polls in advance of it. <laughs> there really <laughs> was a great civil servant Tom Power there at the time who was an encyclopedia on the tobacco industry and who was very committed to dealing with this issue and I think he found a politician who was equally committed to this. So we created the, the Office of Tobacco Control which was an important agency to really just be exclusively focused on dealing with tobacco. It wasn't just a ban on the workplace, it was the banning of 10-pack cigarettes. It was getting cigarettes out of sight in a shop. It was dealing with the advertising issue. And that legislation we brought in in 2002, that tobacco bill was probably the most comprehensive in the world and um, really had impact and the target really overall was to stop generations of young people from continuing with smoking the tobacco industry went for young people you get them hooked in nicotine early in life they're hooked for the rest of their life Mm. and I think it was great to be able to do that and we had huge challenges and I mean you were up against a very powerful industry the publicans but no many publicans were delighted afterwards and said it to me but by God before that and look you can understand it but there were I mean the pressure how it works is and you can see it even today in the context of COVID so I'm I'm no stranger to what's going on in terms of all the lobbying on COVID because I was looking back at newspaper cuttings on the smoking ban and I see all the TDs are complaining and giving out and there was one fam- you know, one difficult parliamentary party meeting where the first 10 TDs spoke against it and they wanted to modify it but thankfully another five came in and spoke for it so it gave me an opportunity to say look I'll absorb what you're saying and so on but ultimately the grassroots of the party at Nordesh after I did the Late Late Show the following day they gave me a standing ovation and said press ahead go for it and I brought Tom Ahern cardiac surgeon who's just retired from Cork University Hospital we signed him up as a member and said will you address the ardish on the importance of the smoking ban and Noel Davrin got was the TD who was very much against it and Davrin knew Tom from I think the temporary background and he came up to me afterwards and gave me a slap in the back it took some typical cu- cute Cork you know what to bring down the heart surgeon to tell him how bad smoking is and when he opens up the body you know when he does the cardiac thoracic surgery and he gives mm-hmm. the black lungs and he gave it socks Tom got a standing ovation at the Ardesh, but winning the grassroots kind of. Moderated the TDs and calmed them down. Eventually, it was only one TD I think voted against it. I think it was Finney and McGrath in the entire dial in the end. And in fairness, there was cross party support. Alan Shatter and, and, and others um, had supported this, and the, the uh, so I have to say that that cross party support and the dial of all parties was very helpful in getting it through as well and in taking on those who who, who were opposed to it um, at the time. But health was look; it was an extraordinary department. There was grenades going off every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and you need to be at your wits' end. I, I had two advisors at the time, Christy Mannion and Deirdre Galland. They were superb. Uh, my first advisor, Governor O'Connor, from Derren she sadly passed away in a terrible uh, car accident. She was outstanding. Deirdre followed Governor. They were both in the Irish Nurses Midwife Organisation. So they knew a bit about the of health. They knew about the, the industrial relations side of it, um, but it was helter-skelter. And did you have to do all that because you were up against, as I said, a very
2: powerful industry? Were, were they pulling punches or really tough to deal the tobacco industry oh yeah the,
3: the, our biggest fear my biggest fear of the tobacco industry was the legal threat and word came you know that they had hired all the big legal offices they'd retained them and so we said okay they're going to challenge this Rory Brady was the Attorney General and to be fair to Bert De Herney he gave me great backing on it uh, and Rory pulled in a few barristers on our side just to get them ready to fine tune the legislation we brought in primary legislation in the end to make sure we could do it on, on health and safety grounds and um, and that we wouldn't drop the ball legally. And the industry, Tom, the, to Tom Pard, who passed away afterwards shortly, knew where the industry was coming from, knew how they would try and uh, undermine us. So, for example, we'd see on tabloids, the cab driver. How can you implement this? And what they were trying to do was make it sound and look ridiculous. This is not implementable. This cannot be done. And the other big one was nanny state. This is the nanny state controlling our life. And that's how they undermine public health messages. So it's a very powerful industry. They set up the hospitality, well, sorry I can't say they did but this hospitality alliance grew mm-hmm. out of nowhere huge resources they went to New York if you remember saying that New York it was destroyed by, um, by the smoking ban I actually then I mean uh, great energy at the time I said okay let's go to New York ourselves and find out and <laughs> off we go to New York uh, to the Department of Health and I did a bit of I often joke it was the first official pub crawl I'd say any minister of health ever did <laughs> I actually did too. and a great place to do it uh, it was a famous place I went to a place where Billy Morgan worked one time when he was in America uh, uh, also um uh, uh, Ms. O'Grady's or whatever and I asked a few we did a few pubs on and, and in New York a few Irish young lads they didn't recognize when I said it's not the smoking band came in here a month ago what's it been like the first month they said it was difficult but after that it's great and they, they said the cleaning bills are going to weigh down uh, it's just fantastic uh, and so we were able to announce that but more importantly I met Bloomberg who was the mayor of New York at the time and we met all his health officials and they settled us down and said listen you've got to work on your compliance just was build up compliance, go to the pubs and restaurants, give them all the literature. And we asked them if, there was, if you were doing anything else, because they had brought in a city ban in New York. Mm-hmm. What would you change if you were doing it all over again? And the New York health officials said we wouldn't have worried as much. And I got it because we were really panicking. What do you do if people don't obey? <laughs> you know, yeah. Just think about it. Yeah. If, there, if there was mass, just non-compliance. Yeah. Uh, and they said the people want this, the people will do it. Uh, and it was an extraordinary day the day we launched it, uh, and we were very lucky. We were delayed by European directive, which says you any legislation you're bringing in that could affect the single market must be given a chance for the member states to look at. And the Germans and the Austrians invoked it, and because they were really under the huge influence of the tobacco industry, so the tobacco industry, working through the Austrian government and the German government, delayed our smoking ban by three months. But thankfully, from January to March, and it was a beautiful sunny day in March. I think we were, gave us fair wind for the, for the summer. It was maybe in retrospect, starting in the cold January <laughs> <laughs> may not have been the best idea. So it's-
1: Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra.
3: How things work out, you know.
2: On the 6th of January 2011, Michal Martin announced that he would vote against Brian Cowan in the upcoming confidence motion on his leadership of the party. He offered to resign as Minister for Foreign Affairs, but Brian Cowan initially refused the offer. Following the result of the motion, which Brian Cowan won, the resignation was eventually accepted. However, on January 22nd, 2011, just days after winning that confidence motion, Brian Cowan announced he was stepping down as leader of the party, but would remain as Taoiseach. The new leader would be Mihal Martin. <laughs>
3: You know, it was a difficult time, but we never fell out over that. I met him before the last general election, uh, before COVID hit, and uh, he was in... Really great form. Correctly identified housing as the issue uh, and the need for you know clarity and simplicity in relation to the housing issue. And as passionate as ever, as passionate as ever, and reading uh, uh, as well. And obviously um, challenges from, from 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 what happened in, from the health perspective. But making good progress um, at that stage. And 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 you know he's out of hospital now. And that you know. How do politicians
2: react? You know when you're in the doll against opposition and you're going for broke, you're going for the for the throats what, so to speak, and then. then Then afterwards, then you bump into each other in the corridors or on the street. For instance, if you bumped into Mary Lou tomorrow morning, I I presume it would be
3: very cordial. Ah, yes, it would. Yeah. Yeah. And we've met in Grove Park uh, at matches and so on like that. You know, you, you, it depends on your mood. Some days, you know, you you mightn't be in the best mood. Some days, and some I can, uh, and some of my advisors say to me, they know how to spark you. You know, they know how to get you going. You know, uh, I have one advisor who keeps on saying, look, try and contain Dean or turn us cross on you. <laughs> 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 So, but <laughs> as a running joke from people outside of Cork, you know. But a <laughs> <laughs> And uh, bec- becoming uh, so, a T-shirt then was a big, big... It was a great honour. honour, honor, yeah. Great honour. Um, and um, again, uh, look, uh, people have perceptions of me. Um, and some people say, oh, this is what he wanted. It's, it, it, I, I'm much more philosophical than that. I tend to take what life dishes out to you in some respects. Um, and... Um, but yeah, it is a great honour and um, didn't realise we'd be hitting into a, a prolonged um, pandemic. Interesting, as health minister, we were preparing for pandemics. We we're learning from WHO, but no one ever thought it really would come and it has come. But you take what's in front of you and, and you mentioned the health service executive, which we initiated back as a, in my last year in health. In many respects, having a national health system or, or, or administration uh, health service executive has been really a gift during the the pandemic because it it has meant national policies around procurement of PPE, around, you know, the the whole protocols around health, around testing and tracing. I'd hate to be doing that with 12 to 15 regional health authorities with 15 executives and you know there's been a real singular uniform focus across the country rolling out the vaccination programme. I think the HSE has performed brilliantly and so you know it was getting bad press down through the years. One of the reasons we set it up was at the time there was about 58 agencies in in charge of health literally so that's been reduced significantly and I think we learned lessons from the pandemic but in any event my view is you know there's, there's a job at hand and so I was very focused, I would be very focused on policy and getting things done as I did in every single department I served in as a minister. I don't believe in just getting office for the sake of getting office. You've got to make, add value to the country. You've got to try and make things better in different areas. So housing is a big issue that I'm very focused on. The health service now will be better as a result of COVID-19. We've learned lessons from it. We're investing more in it, as well as bringing reforms. And I think, you know, I talked a lot to Paul Reid and to Stephen Donnelly about this. And, you know, the relationship between the HSE and primary care, for example, has been transformed during COVID-19. Uh, which is interesting and and important and a lesson there will be a technological transformation of health into the future. And that's not just because of cyber security, but rather we've learned very quickly uh, in terms of getting IT systems up and running in respect of the pandemic and in respect of vaccination, that there's no going back now. We've got to really digitally transform health and there will be some new initiatives coming from the recovery and resilience plan that we submitted to Brussels to draw down funding from Brussels that's available in, in terms of their COVID recovery fund across Europe. Uh, some of that will go into health for for, for improving the techno- technological side of, of, of health. Um, that, that's when, when you say, oh, yeah, it's a great honour to become a teacher, but I'm just very much focused on, on delivery and serving people as best I can.
2: And finally, what are the Taoiseach's views now on the easing of restrictions he announced on Friday week last?
3: Yeah, I mean the 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 overall message is, uh, as I said at the time, clear direction of travel. Uh, we're op- reopening society on a phased and gradual basis, and also on the basis that whatever we reopen, we want to keep open. And many people in hospitality and in retail often said to me over the last year, look, don't open us and close us again if you can avoid it. And the big game changer this year has been the vaccination programme. And that has given us the capacity really to open up gradually on a sustained basis whilst keeping pressure on the virus. And the great rate of participation in the vaccine program in Ireland has been extraordinary compared to other countries. And when I was at European Union Council meetings about a month ago, I can recall some prime minister saying, well, what, what percentage of your over 70s are? And I said, actually, oh, 95% plus, close. To, you know, and the over 80s are close to 100. And they looked at me uh, astounded. And that's good for Ireland. It gives us protection. And it also enables us, us to reopen more gradually. And we've got to watch the variants all of the time. Mm-hmm. It's not, of course, a license to do the fool afterwards, and you, you still have to be
2: very responsive.
3: We do, and I think personal behaviour is going to be key right through to the end of the year, because there's an, an, there is some sense that there's a seasonality attached to this virus. So in the wintertime, it's more severe, more variants can come, which might challenge the vaccines. So that the kind of things we've learned uh, around social distancing, and that is important. We're also learning more about ventilation and the importance of ventilating uh, buildings better and, and being conscious that indoors is more dangerous than outdoors but the vaccines will give us protection uh, and i think if we continue to be vigilant in terms of observing guidelines in terms of general behavior i think we can get through this and we'll get through it
2: t i think you've given me enough time i'll nearly make a box set out of this <laughs> <But> <laughs> thank you so much for joining me it's a real pleasure
3: not at all take care thanks
2: i want to also thank pierce murphy and Parky Wren for his hospitality and help while we were recording in the stadium my appreciation also goes to 96FM and C103's Gaelic Games reporter, Finn Bar-McCarthy, for his assistance in putting all of this evening's program together. Not leastly, thank you for sharing an hour of your Sunday evening with me. Ken Perrett was in sound, and will be again next week when we return with the story and songs of Red Hurley. But until then, for myself, John Green, have a wonderful and a wonderfully safe week. Goodbye for now.
1: Here's a cool fact.